0: Welcome to Homicide, Inc. I'm Peter Von Gaum. Nowadays, if you turn on the television and flip through the channels, you'll find reality show after reality show of desperate people looking for love and a date. Let's face it, the dating world can be a brutal place, but throw in a serial killer, and boy, are you in for a whole heap of trouble. Our killer today is none other than Rodney Alcala, otherwise known as the dating game killer. From the outset, Alcala looked handsomely normal, if not a tad twisted. If you're a sensitive person, be warned, this guy puts the P in pedophile and the creep in creepypasta. Just a quick shout out to Ostino1998 who reviewed and rated the podcast. He writes, always a great listen. Amazing work by the one and only PVG. Thank you very much, Ostino1998. Much appreciated. If you too would like to get a shout-out here on the podcast, please rate and review Homicide, Inc. on Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot, send it to me, and I'll give you a shout-out too. It helps us tremendously in getting more reach with the channel. So thank you indeed. Okay, let's get to the story. Alcala was born in Texas, but moved to Mexico with the family as an infant. When his father abandoned them... His mother took he and his siblings and relocated to Los Angeles. Life was pretty normal for Alcala, and when he was 17, he enlisted in the military, only to be discharged due to having a complete mental breakdown, and was eventually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Not a good fit for the military. And this diagnosis will come as no surprise, as we'll soon find out. The diagnosis didn't hamper his spirits, as he went on to graduate from UCLA with a degree in fine arts. Turns out he was a pretty smart guy, with an IQ of 135. There was one thing, however, that did put a damper on his spirits during graduation. A couple days before, he had lured 8-year-old Tally Shapiro into his car and took her straight back to his apartment, where he sexually assaulted her and beat her bloody with a steel pipe. Thankfully, a man who happened to be out in the street saw Tally enter Alcala's car and was concerned, and followed them to Alcala's apartment. He could see something wasn't right, and he called the police, probably saving her life. Fortunately for Tali, the police got to her in time. Unfortunately for Alcala, it meant he needed to get out of town and fast. To evade his warrant for arrest, Alcala cleverly fled the state and enrolled for film school at NYU, under a new name, John Berger. Now, I don't know about you, but most people who are wanted for arrest would lay low, keep out of the police's radar. But not Alcala. He did the exact opposite. 1971 began the first round of his killing spree, starting with victim number one, Cornelia Michelle Krilly, his first murder. Krilly, a 22-year-old flight attendant, was found raped and dead in her Manhattan apartment. Cause of death was strangulation. This act earned him a place on the FBI's most wanted list. He made it into the top ten. The only wrench in the spokes was that they were looking for Rodney Alcala, who was now using his new name, John Berger. Believing his streak of luck would never end, Alcala changed his name again to Berger with a U instead of Berger with an E. Not that big a difference, but still big enough that this pedophile was able to get a job as a counselor at a children's art camp, thinking had fooled the FBI, Alcala was in for a nasty shock when a couple of girls from the camp recognized his face from a wanted poster hanging in the local post office. They immediately reported to the police and he was arrested shortly after where he was extradited to California. However, his arrest didn't pan out how the police and the state would have liked. The Shapiros had left the state of California and had relocated the entire family to Mexico. And to top it all off, they refused to let young Tali testify during Alcala's court case. This was a massive blow for the California judiciary system. Because they didn't have a primary witness, they couldn't charge Alcala with rape and attempted murder. Instead, he was convicted of child molestation and only handed a three-year sentence. Barely a slap on the wrist, for beating a child with a pipe. As if this could not get any more unbelievable, Alcala was released on parole after 17 months. He was only out of prison for less than two months before he was rearrested with another assault charge, giving drugs to a minor and violating his parole. In 1974, he had somehow convinced 13-year-old Julie J. that he would give her a lift to school. Inside the car, he forced her to smoke marijuana and kissed her on the lips. Thankfully, she managed to escape him. By now, you would have thought that the police would have learned their lesson with Alcala. But apparently not, because in 1977, he was released again to visit relatives for a week. His parole officers had let him travel on a flight by himself to New York City. Big mistake. Police believed that he had murdered Ellen Hover within seven days of arriving there. Hover, who was the granddaughter of singer Dean Martin, was reported missing by her friends on July 15, 1977. When police searched her possessions, they found a calendar date marked with John Berger. Her remains were found a year later in 1978 buried in a shallow grave on the Rockefeller estate. Yes, those Rockefellers. One can only assume that Ellen Hover had some friendly association with the Rockefellers, due to her being Dino's grandkid. Perhaps they had attended a party there. Police at that time didn't arrest him due to insufficient evidence. So, as usual, he had gotten away with it. For now deciding he needed to do something constructive with his time. Besides uh, murdering and being a general creep, he got a job at the LA Times as a typesetter. Thank God, not a babysitter. This was perfect for him, as working at the LA Times gave him credibility for what he was about to do next. It was during this period of 1978 and 79 that his true creepiness came out. Alcala, who was now back to using his real name and had somehow managed to get a job with his criminal record, began pretending that he was a photographer for the L.A. Times. Using his handsome face and natural charm, he managed to convince at least a couple hundred young men and women to pose for his photos. Some of Alcala's victims said he would tell women he was a fashion photographer and show them his company card. Another one of his favorite lies was to tell his victims that he was entering them in a contest. A large number of the models were never seen or heard from again after meeting with him. One of his co-workers at the time had explained that Alcala would bring these photographs into the office and show them to his friends. The co-worker admitted she thought the subject matter was disturbing, as most were sexually explicit in nature. When she asked him why many of the girls and boys were naked, he had replied that their mothers had asked him to do so. Right. Like, that's not weird. But clearly the co-worker found it an acceptable answer and dropped the subject, leaving Alcala to do as he pleased. 17-year-old Lyann Ledham was one of the lucky girls who had managed to leave Alcala's photo shoot unharmed. Ledham explained that she arrived under the impression that Alcala was a fashion photographer from the LA Times and was quite excited to have some photos taken. The illusion was shattered the moment she walked into the studio that evening. She quickly realized how weird he was. She became uncomfortable when he began to show his portfolio. Ledham described it as page after page after page of naked and explicit photos of women and young teenage boys. She left immediately. Monique Hoyt, who was 15 at the time, was not so lucky. During her photo shoot, Alcala had knocked her unconscious and assaulted her. She escaped when she became conscious again. This added another victim to his sadistic scoreboard. But this still didn't deter him. In fact, in 1978, slap-bang in the middle of his killing spree, Alcala enters as a contestant on the hugely popular television game show The Dating Game. <laughs> Luckily for him, the show didn't run a background check. Or else they would have quickly discovered the guy was a convicted pedophile, felon, ex-con, and well-rounded creep de jour. His narcissism simply prevented him from keeping a low profile. Similar to popular dating show The Bachelor, the contestants are looking for the perfect partner, and Alcala felt he was the right guy for the job. And guess what? He was right. Alcala went on to win the show with his sexual innuendos. In fact, when his potential date, Cheryl Bradshaw had asked him what kind of meal he'd be, Alcala had answered on live television I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Peel me. Ugh, really? Well, Bradshaw obviously liked what she heard, and Alcala beat out the other two contestants to win a date with her. There was just one small problem. Throughout the show, contestants interviewed each other unseen. The focus was on the person's personality and gift to gab, which Alcala had mastered. So when Cheryl did finally meet Alcala face to face, she point-blank refused to go out with him. She apparently found him creepy and disturbing. We don't blame her. Perhaps it was her rejection of him that pushed him to the breaking point, to the point where he murdered again. Twelve-year-old Robin Samso. On June 20th, 1979, Samso's friends reported being approached by a strange man on the beach, asking if they were interested in participating in a photoshoot. I think we know where this is headed. They all felt that he was strange and declined his offer. Robin felt especially uncomfortable and asked to borrow her friend's bicycle to ride to her ballet class. That was the last time she was seen alive. Her remains were found by a park ranger 12 days later in the foothills of the Sierra Madre mountain range. Heartbroken, Samso's friends were able to provide the police with a sketch of what the stranger on the beach looked like. Alcala's former parole officer recognized him immediately. Taking a chance, they searched Alcala's mother's house, and their visit paid off. They'd found a receipt for a rental storage locker in Seattle. Bingo! In that locker, they found Samso's earrings, as well as a ton of jewelry belonging to Alcala's previous victims. They finally had their man, or so they thought. Alcala was arrested in 1980 and sentenced to death for the murder of Robin Samso. But the case was overturned by the Supreme Court, as the jury had improperly informed about his previous sex crimes. In 1986, Alcala was again sentenced to death for Samso's murder, but the case was overturned again. Finally, in 2010, he was brought back into the courtroom. In between the years of 86 and 2010, investigators had been able to use Alcala's DNA to link him to a number of homicides. He was eventually charged and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Jill Barcombe and Georgia Wixted in 1977, Charlotte Lamb in 1978, and Jill Parento in 1979, and then Little Robin Samso later the same year. This time, Tally Shapiro had even testified in court, helping to put him behind bars for good. This, however, is not the full list of his victims, dead or alive. Police now know he killed Ellen Hover and Cornelia Krilley. During the trial, a number of Alcala's photographs were released for victim identification, and many women came forward, claiming they had also had their photos taken by a John Berger. In fact, more than a hundred of these photos are still online, as police are requesting the public's help in identifying the victims. Authorities believe that his victim count is actually somewhere between 50 to 130 people, although these numbers have not been confirmed. If by now you're still a tad confused about all his charges and what they are, here's a quick recap. It's almost like a warped version of the 12 days of Christmas. One count of battery, one count of kidnapping, violation of probation, Two counts of rape, one count of providing cannabis to a minor, five counts of first-degree murder, at least. Rodney Alcala died on July 24, 2021, at the hospital wing of the California State Prison in Corcoran due to natural causes. His reign of terror is finally over, and hopefully now his victims can breathe a sigh of relief that he really and truly is gone and accounted for. Just as a footnote, the creep and I share a birthday, August 23rd. Ugh. Thank baby Jesus that's all we have in common. Well, except for the charming part. It always amazes me that many of these killers and criminals have egos that are far greater than common sense. Common sense tells us to lay low when you're on an FBI Most Wanted list, but for many, The thrill of taunting the authorities or simply the compulsion to commit further atrocities is an untamable urge. Now, I'm no profiler or psychologist or anything other than an armchair investigator. But one consistent ingredient to many of these perpetrators is that they're from a broken home. Rodney Alcala was no exception. His father had abandoned the family when he was a young boy. A very unfortunate statistic. I'd like to give a quick thanks to all of our lovely OG supporters on Patreon who contribute $3 each month to help support the production costs of this podcast. Thank you very much for helping keep the cogs of Homicide Inc. turning. It's a huge help. And an extra special thanks to our Yakuza members on Patreon who have kept their pinkies and enjoy an extra two exclusive Homiciding podcasts each month. Jason Bourgeois, Linda Morita, Warwick, Nida, a.k.a. 2otaku, Lenny Schaefer, and Nick Lazak. Thank you guys indeed. If you too would like to become a patron and help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, please check the description of the show notes for this podcast, and that information is there. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to the Homicide Inc., true crime podcast if you like this type of podcast and you haven't already subscribed please consider doing so if you have a compelling true crime story you would like me to consider investigating send me an email and if you would like to help support the production of the Homiciding podcast you could always buy us a cup of coffee those details are also in the description thanks so much and we'll be seeing you again very soon ciao for now Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. Bachelor number one. Yes? What's your best time? The best time is at night. Nighttime. <laughs> Why do you say that? What's wrong with uh, morning, afternoon? Well, they're okay, but night is when it really gets good then you're really ready. I'm a drama teacher and I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one. You're a dirty old man. Take it. Oh, come on over here. <laughs> I am serving you for dinner. Oh. What are you called and What do you look like? I'm called the banana and I look really good. Uh, Can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me.